Well, good morning to all of you. As Osen said, my name is Moises Ortiz. I am uh, a pastor teacher at Crossway Fellowship up in Linwood. Um, I'm originally born and raised in Mexico City. Um, and I came in 2017 uh, just to study seminary, and that's uh, where I got the opportunity to meet Ozan and other beloved brothers that were just a gift. Um, and everything that he said was true. For me, the relationship with him and other brothers was just outstanding and probably the best of that time in, in South Dakota. Uh, today we're going to be studying Psalm 115, so if you guys can go in your Bibles and find that. And my prayer this morning is that as we study this psalm, we will be able to develop and understand and just grow a powerful desire in our hearts to give the glory to the Lord. Not just as a theological concept or as something that we don't really know how to practice, not just a, as a good line in a song, but actually as something that we can acquire as a personal anthem, as something that we find being something that we want to practice and that we learn how to practice every day. The process of giving God the glory, it's much more harder probably and challenging than what we normally will think. Because it's a concept that it's out there that we're probably used to hear here and then. But what we need to face, or what we face when we start wrestling and battling with ourselves is I have a set of idols in my heart and I need to battle those in order to give God the glory. Uh, and I hope that through opening God's word today in Psalm 115, we will consider these things and we will meditate in our hearts how to give God the glory instead of giving glory to our idols. So please, if you stand, if you may stand, if you can, and you follow with your eyes, I'll, I'll read Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not, uh, and they do not make a sound with their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. 
May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. And I will ask you, let's read together verse 18, and then we will read together verse 1. But we will bless the Lord for this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Amen. Please take a seat. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you recognizing our inability to give you the glory. Recognizing, Father, that our flesh gets in the way much more often than what we would like. So, Father, we plead to you that you will give us strength, that you will clear our hearts and minds to hear the word, the inerrant, powerful, full of authority word of the Lord, so that that will transform, will change our hearts. Father, we come humbly before you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So probably, uh, as you know, and I, I just want to give a super quick, uh, not context, but a little bit of an explanation here. Probably a lot of you know, um, Psalms, is a, it's part of the poetry in the Bible. And in the poetry, in the biblical poetry, you will find different types of poetry. It's not like our poetry that we seek for rhyme and the things that we repeat are the things that are the most important in the literature or the poem. In the, in the Hebrew literature, it's different. Uh, the poetic structure will find either what we know as strophes or acrostics or chiasms. And a chiasm, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with this concept, but the chiasm, what does is it starts creating um, the point of the author will end up in the middle. Uh, Mark, for example, wrote his gospel with this idea, the chiasm. And basically what you will find is that there's one initial point that will be repeated at the end, and that's why we read verse 18 and verse 1. And then it starts going into the middle to set the emphasis or what the author is trying to highlight right in the middle. Different to us that we repeat the idea that we want to emphasize, the Hebrew literature will emphasize that one idea that it's in the middle. Some people call this um, the sandwich structure or the burger structure because the main thing, the most important thing, you will find it in the middle. Now, this psalm is arranged with three main themes, and, and you will find that in your bulletin. The three main themes that we will find, again, that goes from one, verse 1 to verse 18, is the first theme, theme A, is glory and praise to Yahweh. And you will find that verse 1 and verses 17 and 18. The second theme that you will find here is Yahweh is sovereign. And that is in verses 2 and 3, and verses 15 and 16. And the third theme that is where 
the, the, the emphasis goes is trust Yahweh, not on useless idols. And you will find that on verses 8 to 4 and 19 to 14. So those are the three themes that dominate the psalm. Now for our study this morning, we're going to consider six movements in the psalm. The six different movements, as if it was like a symphony that structures this psalm. And you will find those on your bulletin as well. To your name give glory in verse 1. Here is the God worth of glory, verses 2 and 3. The curse of trusting in false gods, verses 8 to 8. The blessing of trusting the true God, verses 19 to 15, just the first part. Then give glory to the sovereign God, the second part of verse 15 and 16. And then we will give you the glory, verses 17 and 18. So our first topic this morning, our first movement, to your name give glory, verse 1. And this psalm opens in a beautiful way. And in a very realistic way. It is a petition, it's a cry from the believer to the Lord. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name bring glory. To your name give glory. Sadly, this, this is our natural tendency. If you've been a Christian for an hour or you've been a Christian for your whole life, you know this is a tendency where we are seeking to gain the glory in every single aspect of our life. This tendency that we have, is, it's so elusive that we don't even notice it at times. It's not obvious to us all the time. And, and, and if you think about this, and, and we are sons and daughters of the postmodern world and the humanistic view. So this has created such a mentality that tells you that you have to be on the highest point of everything. You are the core of your life. You should be the center of the lives around you. You are the center of the universe. The postmodern philosophies and religions says that all the cosmos is focusing on you. Everything goes around you. So we have such a high view of ourselves, such a high view of what we accomplish, our victories, that we just think of ourselves. And we are living in a culture that emphasizes to be self-centered as a way to find answers for life. Just think about this. The postmodern philosophies and mentalities tells you that what you need to do is to meditate, to go inside yourself, and that you will find the answer there. You just need to put your mind in silence. Go inside and find the answer inside of you. What we read in the Bible is absolutely not. The answer is outside of you. You need to bring down the old man, tear that down, and find the answer outside of you, in the cross, in Christ, in God, not inside of you. But our mentality right now tells us it's about you. It's everything about you. And sadly, the Christian world has, has bought into this. The way the gospel is preached in many places is 
all about you. The redemptive story of God, it's all about you. A lot of the songs that sadly are sung and written are all about you. There's almost like a pity God here that was needing you so badly that did everything to gain you. And that's where the story ends. What about his justice? His holy wrath? His glory? The redemptive story starts with God and ends with God, and we receive the benefits of that in his immense love. But you and I are not the center of the redemptive story of God. So the cry of the psalmist is, not to us, O Lord, not to us. And we understand this concept of the glory of God, like I said in the very beginning. But it's something that is hard to deal with. And look at this, look at verse 1. When the psalmist is claiming to the Lord, please not to us, give to your name the glory, and he gives reasons. And the reason is your steadfast love and your faithfulness. The, God has, the Lord has shown his love, his faithfulness, time and time. The Lord has displayed his beauty, his love, his faithfulness with Israel, with us. And we need to think and remember and consider who the Lord is so that we actually can focus on giving him the glory. Now, there's no options here. We cannot negotiate with God's glory. He deserves praise, honor, and adoration. As Christians, we need to stop and reconsider the place that we are given to the glory of God in our lives, in our daily adoration. I believe we have set aside, because of this mentality that I, that I talked before, I think we have set aside and we have reduced the importance of the glory of God. But let's consider why Isaiah 48, 11 says, and you don't have to find it, I'll read it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For who could profane my name, my glory I will not give to another. For my sake, I do all things. And my glory, I will not give to anyone. I will not share my glory with anyone. That's what the Lord is saying through Isaiah. So God's glory is not something that we can take lightly. It's not something that we can ignore. It's something that we need to consider highly. But now the question is, and a lot of people wrestle with this. The question is, why does God need the glory? Why is it it's so important to God that we give him the glory? A lot of people wrestle with the idea of, this sounds a little bit narcissistic coming from God. If he's God, why does he need the glory and needs to be reminded about his glory? Isn't that wrong? Isn't that incorrect? Because if I do that, you all will say, well, that's, that's a little bit too much. That's very self-centered. That's like 
pushing your ego, that's not correct. Then if God is the standard, why then it's wrong for me and it's right for God? Well, for one reason, and sorry if my answer is not intellectually very satisfying, but the reason is because he's God. We are not. You are not. He is God. And it's just because of that simple reason that he deserves the glory. Now, this is very interesting. In God's perfect economy, what is good, what is correct, what is perfect, it's also good for us. The best thing that you can do for yourself is give the glory to the Lord. In the perfect aspects of life that the Lord has developed for us is that when we do right, we are blessed. When we give God the glory, it's good for us. Now, God is perfect. God cannot make mistakes. Because of his deity, he deserves the glory. If God was not demanding the glory from his creation, that'll be wrong for him. That's one of the other differences. If you, if you demand the glory, that is wrong for you. That it's incorrect. But if God does not demand the glory for himself, that is wrong for him. Because he does indeed deserves the glory. So that is one of the main differences. There is no narcissistic thing here. It's just the absolute precision of the righteousness of God in display when he demands the glory. Now, let's please consider this. And, and, and you know this story. When, when John the baptizer is with Jesus... And Jesus comes to him and says, I need to be baptized by you. John says, no way. I need to be baptized by you. And then the answer of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus, is this one. Do so because this is, this is right. This will fulfill righteousness. It's the same concept here. There's aspects that touch on the righteousness of God that will bring him the glory because what it's righteous it's happening now the best way that we can approach life and this is the best thing you can do and this is the best thing you can teach to your children is to consider what the psalm 115 says in the very beginning not as a mantra not as an empty phrase but it's something that you want your heart to memorize. Add to your prayers, not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. Focus your life, focus your ministry, focus your parenting on giving the glory to the Lord. Now let's consider a second movement here. Here is the God worthy of glory, verses 2 and 3. The, the, verse 2 opens with this question, where is your God? And as Christians, I'm sure you have been challenged by that. And after the season, we live like, where is God that people are dying? Where is God when there's hunger? Where is God when there's natural disasters? Where is God in the middle of COVID? Where is he? And there is a question 
that we observe here that Israel was dealing with. Israel was being challenged by where is your God? Now, let's try to place ourselves back there. Let's try to just go super fast in our minds to what they were facing. The different nations around Israel, they had gods. And they were tangible. You could see them. They craft them. So just try to imagine a dominating culture where your gods are there. You can touch them. You can see them. And they have specialized gods, right? For fertility and the sun and harvest, all these things. And then the people are observing this new group and they have no gods. You can see them. You can touch them. So they're like, where are your gods? Well, well, our God is a spirit, so you can't see it. Just think on that mentality. Like, Well, that's kind of lame. I mean, you can go and buy your gods and, 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 and you can get the one you want and it could be very strong and good looking. Why in the world you decide to worship an invisible God? That kind of like, that doesn't sell very well. Now, the other thing is like, we have a gods that are very specialized. How many gods do you have? Oh, just one. One? You know, it's like telling to my mom, you only need one pair of shoes. Well, <laughs> what are you talking about? One pair of shoes? That's nonsense. This is the mentality Israel is facing. And now they come and say, our God, you can't see. Why? Because you cannot contain our God. You cannot limit our God. Why is that we don't need a ton of gods? Because our God is almighty. It's not that your gods are specialized. Even in their mentality, their gods are limited. This is the God of the war. Can he make rain? No, no, no rain, just war. Oh, the, the God for the rain, can he allow us some fertility? No, that's a different one. Israel is saying, our God is almighty. He can do everything. Psalm 42, 3 says this. This is what Israel was facing. My tears have been food, my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? This was something that was happening all the time. Now the answer that Israel is able to give is like, my God is not in my living room, is not in my pocket. See what they are saying. Our God, verse 3, is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He doesn't need to negotiate in between the God of the war, with the God of rain, with the God of fertility. He doesn't need to negotiate. He does all that he pleases. What he wants. He's almighty. He's powerful. He's sovereign. Our God cannot be limited cannot be contained. He determines what happens. And he also determines all that doesn't happen. Now, try to be informing when, as we reflect on this. Your view of God. 
Are you reducing God? Are you limiting God? Are you putting God in a box? Are you reducing the power, the might of the God of the universe? Our third movement, the curse of trusting in false gods. Now, the author describes the false gods now, and he makes this really cool image, and he makes a list. We have eyes, noses, mouth, feet, and yet they can see, they can hear, they can smell, they can touch, they can't do anything. They are the work of hands. They are crafted to the image of what people want, but they are absolutely useless. Look at them. They have feet, and they can't walk. They have mouths, and they can't answer back. They can't feel. They can talk. How ridiculous are your idols? They are pathetic idols. You craft them with feet and they can't walk. You craft them with mouths and they can't speak. You craft them with hands and they can't touch. How pathetic is that? That's what Israel is pushing back. That's what Psalm 115 is pushing back. Now, look at verse 8, and this is very significant. And, we, uh, and we're talking about how the Jewish poetry, the Hebrew poetry, points to the middle. For you have the liver... Uh, sorry, verse 8. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. What is the risk? What is the problem of having idols that you will become like them? That is a problem with the idols. Dane Ortland, in his now very famous book, Gentle and Lonely, says, this is why we need the Bible. Because without the Bible, we end up with a God that is like us. That is the problem when we don't grasp God's word to know who he is. And we break the notion of who we want him to be. How this God can function better for me. How can I craft the God of the universe, to serve me. We need the Bible. We need to grasp God's word to reflect on who he is, to actually understand who God is. Now, Psalm uh, 115 is talking about these very primitive, very rudimentary idols. And let me tell you something. I, I come from, a, from Mexico, uh, a very high... Catholic culture, a lot of strong syncretism there. And in Latin America, we have this tendency of thinking that idols are just these crafted idols, right? These status images, and we reduce ourselves there. But John Calvin used to say that our hearts are these factories. They're, they are manufacturing idols all, all the time. That's what our heart does. We were made, we were created, and Psalm says this too, for worship, for adoration. That's what you were made for. If you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping something else. And when you're not worshiping God, that's idolatry. Idolatry is easier and harder at the same time. 
See, it happens like this, but sometimes it's very hard to grasp. When we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping something else. And our idols today, they're not as primitive, probably. They're not as rudimentary as the ones that Psalm 115 is talking about. Our idols are way more complex or more sophisticated. And in the Christian world, I will say they're also also more elusive. And the reason why is because we're able to clothe them with Christianity. I can clothe my idols in a very, very neat way with Christian concepts. The reason why Adam ruined God's creation, the reason why the veil has to come in separation in between a fallen humanity and a holy God is because Adam and Eve wanted to determine God's terms in their terms. They decided we are going to determine what is good and what is bad on our own terms. We're going to build our pathetic kingdoms. We're going to build and vow before our idols. Even in the Old Testament, the Lord was denouncing through the words of Ezekiel that the problem of worship has nothing to do with the craftsman, with the statue, with the image, what is with the heart. Ezekiel points at the problem of the idolatry. It's in the heart. Our counseling pastor at Crossway says that every single Christian has a confessional theology and a practical theology. The confessional theology is what we just read on the Apostles' Creed are those things that we say with our good theology. That's all the good things that we know. Our practical theology is what we actually practice, is what we actually do. We trust in a sovereign and powerful God, but then we have an issue and we're like, I don't know if I really trust that. Why will God do this? Most of the times our confessional theology is here, our practical theology is here. The Christian journey is to bring my practical theology closer to my confessional theology, most of the times it feels more like this. You all know the Christian journey is not a straight line. It goes a little bit like this. Now let's consider how we clothe our idols with Christian garments. With our practical theology, a lot of us worship financial, financial certainty and money. And we clothe that with the We clothe that idol with a garment of stewardship. Or we worship reputation, but we clothe that idol with a garment of good testimony. We worship control and manipulation, but we clothe that garment with exercising my freedoms. And by no means stewardship or good testimony or freedoms are wrong. The problem is that you find the satisfaction in those and not in the Lord. And that's a problem of, of idolatry. Is when I need things to go my way and I'm able to craft this beautiful cloth of Christianity just to put it on top of my idol and keep worshiping that through a lens of Christianity. The question is, are you glorifying God? 
Are you mostly satisfying the Lord? Are you content with what the Lord is doing? Ask yourself this question. When I think about my reputation or I think about stewardship or I think about good testimony, which kingdom I'm building? God's kingdom or my kingdom? And let me add an adjective to that. Or my pathetic kingdom. Which kingdom are we building? And I wonder why this is so hard to realize. It's so difficult sometimes to observe these things because we have become very skilled at deceiving ourselves, at crafting these things that will obscure the real idolatry of our hearts. This is why we need the Lord to destroy that that keeps us in our idolatry. Now, with the Lord, there's no way out. When giving God the glory, there's no way out. Again, think about this, meditate about this, not to us. Oh Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. Why? For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Now, our, second, our fourth movement, the blessing of trusting the true God. Starting with the idea that he is worthy of glory. Verses 9 to 15. And consider what he's saying here. He's saying, be aware, these idols are false. They are crafted. They are pathetic. But if you worship them, if you make them, you will be more like them. And now is a moment of contrast. But observe the glory of the Lord. Now let's look at the real, true God that deserves all the glory and honor. We find our hope and rest in the only, in the only true God. And that's what the psalmist is making a contrast here in between the false and the true gods. In this section, he's explaining who this God is. Trust him and we'll end up in blessing. That is the formula that he's using. If you trust Yahweh, if you trust the true God, you will find blessing. The formula is trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. If you trust the Lord, you will find His protection. You will be blessed. That is the difference between the pathetic idol and the true God. Look at the contrast here. It's such a powerful image here. He's contrasting these idols with hands, with feet, with noses, with mouths. They can't do anything. In contrast... If you trust the Lord, he is the shield of Israel. He is the shield of the house of Aaron. Those who fear the Lord will find rest. They will be able to trust. You don't need to see the idol. You don't need to see something crafted to experience the power of the Lord. For he is their shield. He is our shield. The Lord will rescue us. He will bring deliverance. He's the perfect protection. 
Again, consider this. Think about the military history of Israel. They were not very good. One of the best battles, they won this one just walking around the city. And we just think about that. In the desert, walking for 40 years, what did the Lord tell them? Like, well, you practice, just walk around the city. I'll do the rest. <laughs> That's how skilled they were in their military aspect. And then the psalmist in 115 says, we're not the best army, and yet he is the shield. We're still here. He has protected us. Verses 12 to 15, they express this hope and the blessing of the Lord. Those who are able to trust in the Lord will receive all these blessings. And observe verse 14 and 15 especially. Precious, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord. Sorry, 15, may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. He's transitioning now to go back to the point of give the glory to the Lord. He's making this transition now. And it's all about the blessing. It's all about the beauty of trusting the true God. Let's look at our fifth movement here. Give glory to the sovereign God. He made heaven and earth. Everything that you can see, where you are, he made that. That is the level of power and sovereignty and might. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. Basically what the psalmist, the point that he's making is, those things that you're boasting of, that you're bragging about, he gave you that. Those things that you cannot achieve, the heavens, that's the Lord's. Oh, you think you have dominion over the earth? Let me tell you something. He gave you that. And then we shockingly face the idea of our culture is telling us, oh, but we're so great. We're so important. We deserve so much. You should be living your best life today. What does the Lord is saying? No. Who deserves the glory? Who deserves the worship? Who deserves the adoration? The Lord and the Lord alone. Look at the blessing that we are partakers of giving him the glory. That's the blessing. That is when we are able to get away from our idol and think about Real worship, real adoration, giving the glory to the Lord. Our God is in the heavens. But it's not just that he lives there. He owns that. It's not a place that he's using, that he's renting from someone. But he owns, he created, he designed this. And this is the answer to the nations. Remember verse 2. What is your God? Well, he's in the heavens. 
And he owns everything. And he gave you in his common grace, earth. That's where God is. In the absolute control, in the sovereign power of controlling everything that happens and everything that doesn't happen. And our last point, as we observe this beautiful display of sovereignty, it comes now to a, to a common song, to a common proclamation. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. Why? Because we have a a God that is a God of the living. Why? Because the Lord has offered eternal life for those who are alive. He is a God of living people. That is the God that we have. And now, your glory has no end, O Lord. Your glory is forever. Your glory has been there from eternity past to eternity future. Nothing can exhaust your glory. Not even death can exhaust your glory. This is who you are, O oh Lord. You are a shield to Israel. You are a shield to us. We have to confess that we often craft these idols in our hearts and we tend to be deeply unfaithful. We are a deeply unfaithful people. But observe his love. And verse 1 said this. is because of your faithfulness and your steadfast love. Think of this. If you have children or you are in this season of getting married or dating someone... Imagine that that person that you love comes and tells you, like, I would love to marry you, but I think I'm going to be unfaithful all my life. You'll be like, yeah, probably not. <laughs> I don't think this is going to work. Probably your parents will be like, yeah, no, <laughs> not the best idea. If you have ever had a moment of someone, a friend be that betrays you, that you trust someone, that you told someone something very important that you were hoping that they will keep on, uh, uh, as a secret, and they don't, and they betray you. One expression that we have, one expression that we use, like, if I had known, I wouldn't have told this person, would have trusted this person, whatever it is, if I had known. Well, we have a God that knows. God has never said this phrase about you. If I have known that Moses was going to do this and this and this, I would have sent my son to the cross. He knew. He knows. For your steadfast love and your faithfulness. He knows. You're not going to surprise him with your unfaithfulness. But he's encouraging you. He's pressing you to give him the glory and we saw that in verse 1. Our hearts deeply, brothers and sisters, deeply desire to build our kingdoms. 
our hearts are normally pressing and pushing us for our kingdoms. Because they look so, so good. They're so well designed. They fit you so well. And that is why we desire these kingdoms. The reality is what verse 18 is saying. And we can say that as a people, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever, forevermore. Praise the Lord. Bring all your heart. Don't bow before your idols, but give, give the glory to the Lord. Brothers, sisters, this is why Jesus Christ went to the cross. This is why the Lord gave his only son to die in the cross. Jesus went to the cross so that people like you and I that love to worship false gods every single second that does not deserve salvation, that does not deserve the message of the cross and the good news of Jesus Christ is because of his faithfulness and his steadfast love, that we can come and hear the good news of the gospel, that idolaters like you and I can just bow before the only true, real God that deserves the glory. Those are the good news of the gospel, that your heart can be changed and transformed, and instead of creating idols, will be destroying idols and bowing just before the Lord. So that we can cry, and we can say, and we can sing, Father, glorify yourself in me. That as a church we can say, Father, glorify yourself in us. Glorify yourself in this local church. Glorify yourself in your daughters and sons. And in anything that we do, every single moment that we do. As Psalm 150 says, every single time, every single time we breathe that we will bring glory to the Lord, not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. Let's pray. Father God, we deeply need you. Father, you are a shield. You are powerful. You don't change. And we need desperately to come before you. Help us, Father, to give us the glory. Father, I lift up this church so that it will be known by the neighbors, by, by those around them, that this is a church that gives glory to the Lord. Father, thank you for allowing us to be partakers of building your kingdom. And it's in humility that we come before you, asking you to remove our idols and to give us hearts and minds and hands that will worship you and you alone. It's in Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.